Proverbs chapter 20, and let's read verses 1 to 15. Proverbs 20, verses 1 to 15. says, Wine is a mocker, and strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. The terror of a king is like a growling of a lion. He who provokes him to anger forfeits his own life. Keep away from strife. Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man. But any fool will quarrel. The sluggard does not plow after the autumn. So he begs during the harvest and has nothing. A plan in the heart of a man is like deep water. But a man of understanding draws it out. Many a man proclaims his own loyalty. But who can find a trustworthy man? A righteous man who walks in his integrity. How blessed are his sons after him. A king who sits on the throne of justice disperses all evil with his eyes. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart. I am pure from my sin. Differing weights and differing measures, both of them are abominable to the Lord. It is by his deeds that a lad distinguishes himself if his conduct is pure and right. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made both of them. Do not love sleep or you will become poor. Open your eyes and you will be satisfied with food. Bad, bad, says the buyer, but when he goes his way, then he boasts. There is gold and an abundance of jewels, but the lips of knowledge are a more precious thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we pray that we would, Lord, incorporate all that we hear and read into our faith and practice. Lord, knowing that these Proverbs are given to us, Lord, to teach us everything that we need for life and godliness, instructing us both in sound doctrine, teaching us here that no one can say that they are pure and that they have cleansed their heart, and also teaching us how to live a life of godliness before you, how to be diligent and hard workers and honest and truthful in all that we do. So, Father, we pray that you would disperse to us, Lord, in both regards, that you would build us up both in our faith and in our practice, both in what we believe and how we live, so that our life, both in our thoughts and our mind, and also in our words and our actions, would conform more and more to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And, Lord, we pray that you would ultimately conform us perfectly to his image, and let, Lord, we would be made righteous as he is righteous. And so, Lord, press us on. Give to us, Lord, that which we so greatly desire. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler. And whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Here, wine and strong drink are traps and snares many times to many men. Right? That they deceive many men because they're not able to exercise these in moderation, right? as is proper and fitting. But many people quickly become intoxicated by either wine or strong drink. And when one becomes intoxicated with wine and strong drink, they either become a fool or they become a brawler. Meaning that they act a, a foolish, nonsensical way that makes themselves a mockery to every other person. Right? They say things that they commonly wouldn't say. They do things and behave in ways that they commonly would not behave. This is because the intoxicating effects of the alcohol on them 
causes them to lose their moderation and their self-control. So they give free rein to their lips and to their action. And in some regards, people who are intoxicated, they act very foolishly, right? They slur their speech and everyone laughs at them and mocks them. So they become a mockery in their behavior. Or they become a brawler. Some people, when they get drunk, they become very angry. They become very harsh, right? And they are more inclined to fight, uh, to brawl, to get into these kinds of uh, alter, uh, altercations that normally they would not get into. And this is what happens when people are given to intoxicating drink. Whenever they become intoxicated with wine or strong drink, they either become fools or they become brawlers in this way. Proverbs 23 <clears throat> gives a lengthy section about the dangers of drunkenness. The dangers of, drunk, of drunkenness. <clears throat> and why it is that these must be exercised with moderation. Proverbs 23, 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea, or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. This is what happens to the drunkard, right? To the one who is given over to this immoderate use of wine and strong drink. It increases woe, sorrow, contention, complaining, wounds, redness of eyes. It affects the soul. It affects the body. It affects relationships, right? It makes someone into a very foolish and profane man. And many times, men will utter profane things. They'll blaspheme God in their fits of drunken stupor. And they'll say very hateful things to even their loved ones, their wife, their children, in their drunken stupor. And so it is something that is a great danger and has been the ruin and fall of many men over the course of human history. Verse 2, the, care, the terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. He who provokes him to anger forfeits his own life. The king, when the king becomes angry, right, he is like the growling of a lion. You don't want to arouse the lion when he is asleep, when he is sedated, or when he is in a docile manner. You don't want to arouse him, provoke him, so that he becomes a growling lion, so that he arises in his terror because he is a very powerful animal and will consume you, right? He'll tear you to pieces limb from limb. And this is what the king has the ability to do. Those who are the ruling authorities, because of Romans chapter 13, they do not bear the sword in vain. And they have this authority, this power of the sword that accompanies their office. And if you terrorize them or if you arouse them needlessly, provoke them, then they are going to come after you and you're going to forfeit your own life. They're going to use the power of the sword in order to execute you, whether justly or unjustly. So you should not unwisely, needlessly provoke the king to wrath, but rather do all that you can to be peaceful with him, to have his favor and his goodwill upon you. Now, this is true in this life, but ultimately, we need to think about this in terms of 
the King of kings and Lord of lords. Because when the terror of Christ is awakened, right, when his wrath is kindled, what happens? Well, people perish in the way, right? And his wrath is quickly kindled. So we should not needlessly provoke our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We should never provoke him to wrath, but rather we should be obedient to him, faithful him, subjected ourselves to him, because if he arouses himself against us, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he will devour and consume all of his adversaries. Proverbs 19, verse 12. The king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion, but his favor is like the dew on the grass. We don't want his wrath, we do want his favor. And ultimately, this should be applied to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't want to be his enemy, we want to be his friend. And we are his friends by faith in him, by trusting in him and subjecting our life to his care. Verse 3, keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. Right, The one who keeps away from strife. Not that it is possible for us to avoid all strife in this life. We know that there are times when it is impossible for us to avoid strife. If we read the Gospels about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, though he himself was a meek, mild man, he was a peaceful man, he wanted peace, yet they would not let him have peace. We also know this is true of like the Apostle Paul and all of the Apostles. They were very gracious, kind tender people who were meek and who were mild. They weren't going around picking fights, causing controversies and stirs for no reason. And yet they also had their fair share of strife and contention and people who hated them and were against them. But as far as we can, as far as possible, so far as it depends upon us, how should we seek to live with all men? We should desire peace with all men and keeping away from strife not needlessly provoking strife and conflict and contention with other people, but instead pursuing peace and reconciliation and to live in a quiet, peaceful way with others. This is an honor for a man to live this way. It shows he has self-control. It shows that he is a dignified man, that he has the fruit of the Spirit in his life, that he is a child of God. It is a very honorable thing for a man to pursue and to live at peace with others. And any fool can quarrel. It's very easy to be a quarrelsome person, to constantly bicker and fight and complain and have contention with other people. Right? All you got to do is start talking bad about them. And it's very easy for us to do that. So anyone, any fool, right? it's very common for people to be quarrelsome, to pick fights, to argue, to bicker, to assert themselves and their own opinion, to pick fights when there's no need for them to do so. But it is very rare for someone to be a peaceful man who knows how to hold his tongue so that he's not needlessly getting into fights and contention. In Genesis chapter 13, Genesis 13, Abraham was a man of peace. Though again, he did have his fair share of strife and contention, yet he sought peace as far as he could bring it about. Genesis 13 verse 7, says, there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land. So Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? 
Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. If to the right, then I will go to the left. So this strife that existed between the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot, Abram does not want that strife to spill over in the relationship between him and his nephew Lot. So he is the one pursuing peace and coming to him in this gentle way and also uh, humbling himself, condescending to Lot and giving Lot the option, the choice of where he would want to go. He's providing solutions to deal with and to quell this strife that exists between them and their herdsmen and that could cause greater strife between their families and between the two of them. This because he is a gentle, peaceful man. And this is a very honorable thing for him to behave in this way. And we ought to be like our father Abraham. Proverbs 17, 14 says, The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. The beginning of it is like water being let out. But as that water runs, and more and more of it runs out, then the ditch, the ravine, it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's harder to control. So what you should do in terms of quarrels and conflicts is abandon it, forsake it, before it even begins. If, especially, you know the person you're dealing with, some men are irreconcilable. They are contentious people, and you can never please them, and you'll never satisfy them. So just walk away from it, right? You don't have to be proven right. You don't have to subject them. You don't have to have them say, you're right and I'm wrong. Just walk away from it and leave it alone and abandon the quarrel before it even begins. And this is an honorable thing. Verse 4, the sluggard does not plow after the autumn. So he begs during the harvest and has nothing. The sluggard, right, after the autumn... The hard work that is necessary in order to bring about the crop, the next crop, so that there will be a harvest, he's unwilling to do these things, right? Before there can be the harvest of the grain, there is much hard work that must go in before that. And one of the first things is the plowing in the autumn. But he will not plow in the autumn because in the autumn, it begins to get cold outside and his little fingers might get frostbitten, you know, and, and he doesn't want to be out there exposed to the elements in this way. So he has many convenient excuses for why it is that he will not go out and do the work that is necessary in order to bring about the harvest. But because he doesn't plow, then what will he not do? He won't harvest any grain. He won't have any food and he'll be reduced to being a beggar, a beggarly person going around, right, mooching off of others because he himself was unwilling to go out and do the work that was necessary during the autumn time. Verse 5, a plan in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out, right? Who knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit that is in the man? Right, What is in the, plan, in the hearts of men, in their mind, the secret desires of the heart, these things are hidden deep within the man. Right? And it is very hard for us to discern what is there, whether that be a wicked man or whether that be a good man sometimes. Many people are reserved, so they're not uh, constantly spilling out all of the desires and all of the things that are deep within their heart. And this is the way it is, right? There are plans that are in the heart of man, and it's like deep, deep water. It's not laying there on the surface, but it is deep within the person. But a man of understanding is able to draw it out. The man who has understanding is able, through asking questions, uh, peering into this person, 
right, being able to draw it out of them, he is able to take the bucket and dip, dip it deep within the well, and then is able to draw water out of that person. And this takes great understanding and care to be able to ask questions so that what is there is revealed and brought forward. Whether that be, again, a wicked person in revealing their wicked schemes that are within their heart, or whether that be the wisdom that he desires from the good person, who may himself be a reserved person, who's not a blabbermouth and always going about uh, telling everyone everything that he knows, but he knows that he's a wise man and he wants to attain that wisdom, so the man of understanding will go and will ask him and talk to him so as to draw that out of him for his own benefit, his own sanctification, and his well-being. This is the way that we should be. Verse 6, many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? There are many people who proclaim their own loyalty. They proclaim their loyalty to God. If you go out onto the streets in Shawnee or Meeker, Tecumseh, wherever you live, Colgate, uh, Corbin's here all the way from Colgate. You go out to the streets and you'll find many people who will proclaim their loyalty. Everyone that you meet in Oklahoma is a Christian, right? They're all faithful. They all love God. They're all members of the church. So many a man proclaims his own loyalty to the Lord, right? Even hypocrites will do this. Didn't the Pharisees proclaim their own loyalty to God? We remember in Luke chapter 18, verse 11, there the Pharisee was proclaiming his loyalty to God. He tithes of all that he gets. He fasts twice a week. He's not like other men, like adulterers, fornicators, like this uh, tax collector over here. He's proclaiming his loyalty to God, how faithful he is to the Lord. We know as well from our readings from Matthew 26, even believers sometimes proclaim their loyalty, but their proclamations of their loyalty is very short-lived. And we remember that when Jesus told his own disciples that on that very night, all of them would fall away because of him, that all of them, he would be struck and the sheep would scatter. What did all of the disciples say? Though everyone else forsake you, we will never forsake you. And even Peter said, if I have to die for you, I will die for you. Even if the rest of the disciples leave you, I will never forsake you. Is he not there proclaiming his own loyalty? his faithfulness, his steadfastness. And yet here we find a faithful man who can find. Many people boast and they make loud proclamations about their loyalty to the Lord, but it is very rare indeed to find someone who is actually good to his word, who is actually faithful to the Lord. And ultimately, who is the only trustworthy man that we can find? It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one who always did the will of his Father. Now, we should seek to be like Christ. And we should seek to be trustworthy men, faithful men. But we will always all have our failings, both toward God and our failings toward one another. As far as we can, we should be trustworthy. We should be faithful to the Lord. But we should not boast of our own loyalty, of our own faithfulness, of our own ability to stand in these ways because only the Lord can cause us to stand. Psalm 12, Psalm 12 verse 1 teaches this same concept that it is very rare to find a faithful person. Psalm 12 verse 1, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. The faithful disappear. Where are they at? Where can they be found? 
Where are the faithful followers of Christ? Many people say that they are, but actually finding one is very difficult and very rare indeed. Verse 7, a righteous man who walks in his integrity. How blessed are his sons after him. A man who walks in integrity. This is a man of faith, a man of righteousness, of godliness. Right, His godly life will be a blessing to his children. Because if he's a man of integrity, the faith that exists in him and the character that he has, the integrity that he has, his greatest desire for his children is to pass this heritage down to them, is that they would follow in his footsteps and that they too would be sons of faith, daughters of faith, that they too would walk within with their own integrity. And he will be a blessing because he's going to be teaching his own children the difference between good and evil the difference between truth and error, the difference between godliness and wickedness. He's going to be instructing them in the way that they should go. And is that not the greatest blessing that a father can bestow to his children? To give them a heritage of godliness. And here, this is why he is a blessing to his children. And many times, God is pleased because of his kindness and graciousness to us to pass the faith from the father to the son, from the mother to the daughter to the grandchild. And this is the ultimate legacy that we should desire to leave to our children and our grandchildren, a legacy of faith and of godliness and walking in integrity before the Lord. This is what we should desire and what we should seek from God and for, with our own children. Isn't that what in Malachi chapter 2, chapter 3, it says that the very purpose of marriage or one of the purposes of marriage is that we would present to God godly offspring. That we, the righteous, would present godly offspring to the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 26. It, we'll actually start reading in verse 23. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his descendants begging for bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. He is a blessing to his children, and then as a result, his children are a blessing to others as well, to their own children and to many others. Verse 8, a king who sits on the throne of justice disperses all evil with his eyes. Here, this king must be a righteous king, right? A righteous king on this earth who sits on his throne of justice. And what is the purpose of him sitting on the throne of justice? But to execute justice, right? To dispense justice in the world. And as he observes men, as he hears the cases of men, as they bring their causes before him, he's able, because of his righteousness, his ability to discern, he can discern between good and evil. And those who are coming with evil intentions, he is able to disperse them from his throne of justice with his eyes. This is true of righteous leaders, but especially it's true of Jesus Christ who is King of kings and Lord of lords, and who also has a throne of justice. And his eyes in Revelation chapter 1 are described as a flaming fire. And with his eyes that are a flaming fire, he can see 
the thoughts and the intentions of the hearts of all men. So he is able perfectly to disperse all evildoers from his throne of justice. And when he comes and sits on his glorious throne, this is exactly what he will do. Matthew 25. Matthew 25, 31 to 33 speaks of Jesus returning with all of his angels with him. And then what will he do when he sits on his throne? Matthew 25, 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. So when the Son of Man comes and he sits on his glorious throne, his throne of justice, he will execute perfect judgment among men, separating the righteous from the wicked, the sheep from the goats, in a perfect way. All evil will be dispersed from his sight whenever he comes to judge the secrets of men on that day. Verse 9, who can say, I have cleansed my heart. I am pure from my sin. Who can say this with a straight face? Right? Who can say this with any amount of integrity at all? No one can say this, that I have cleansed myself from all of my sins. I have purified myself from all of my sins. No one can make such boasts and such claims. However, do you know there are people who actually say that? They believe that they can cleanse themselves, that they themselves are pure and righteous through their own works and through their own deeds. But here the Bible is clearly teaching that no one can do this and no one can say this. We also should point out, when is this written? Proverbs chapter 20, new covenant or old covenant? This is when they're under the old covenant. And yet here in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, it is clearly being taught to them that none of you can cleanse yourself from your own sin. You cannot purify your heart by your works, by your obedience to the law. Who can say that they have a clean heart and a pure heart? No one can say these things. And it's impossible for us to purify ourselves from all iniquity. Jeremiah chapter 17 Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, says, The heart is more deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all else. It's desperately sick, according to the prophet Jeremiah, also said in the Old Testament. And if you take Jeremiah 17, 9, with Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9, then you're left with a conclusion that no one in the Old Covenant could cleanse themselves from their own sin. So then, from where does our cleansing come? Also in the Old Testament, Psalm 51, verse 10. Right. The point being, all of this is in the Old Testament. The Bible is teaching one way of salvation from start to finish, that no one can be saved by their own works. Psalm 51, verse 10, the prophet David Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Who's the only one that can cleanse the heart of man? Only the creator of the heart of men. Only God has the ability to create a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. He is the only one with the ability 
to cleanse us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. And what is the source of that purity? It is our Lord Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Only he can wash us and make us white as snow. Verse 10, differing weights and differing measures. Both of them are abominable to the Lord. Right, A person who has differing weights and measures, one weight for buying and another weight for selling. Right, One measure for buying, another measure for selling. For selling. And in every, every time he uses these differing weights, who always gets the advantage? Who do the differing weights always work in the favor of? It always works in his favor. So when he's buying, he uses one weight so that he gets a better price. And when he's selling, he uses a different weight so that he gets a better price. So that he himself is the one making more money. But what is this? This is fraud. It's theft, right? You're stealing. You're defrauding your brother. You're lying to him. You're committing multiple sins. But one of those, you're lying, you're defrauding him, and you're stealing from him. Right, Because you're not being honest in your weights and measurements. This is a violation of the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. What person wants to be cheated? Do I want to be somebody to use false weights and measures with me? Of course not. So then why would I do it to someone else? This is self-evident. This is natural law, written on the heart, written on the conscience. You don't even need... A, a revelation for this. It is so plain and evident. It is clearly there in the conscience of man. But it's also written down for our benefit to confirm these things. Proverbs 11.1. 1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. The false balance is an abomination. The just weight is his delight. The just weight is honesty. It's integrity. It's being truthful. Now, again, we shouldn't get shortchanged. If we're selling something, we should get a fair price for what we're selling. It, but it should be fair for everyone, for every single person, right? And that it's not favoring one or the other. And whenever it does, it is an abomination to God. So we should be honest in our dealings, in our financial dealings with others. We should be honest and have integrity so that we're being pure and upright in the way that we transact these things. Verse 11. It is by his deeds that a lad distinguishes himself if his conduct is pure and right. The way a lad distinguishes himself, the lad being a young man or the youth, and I like the term lad. We should incorporate that more into our vocabulary, just like rascally people that we talked about last week. So lads as well. So I'm going to start calling the young men lads. So the lad distinguishes himself here in terms of the church, and in terms of the righteous and the believers, he distinguishes himself by his conduct, by his character, by his integrity, the way that he lives. This in contrast with the world, where the world seeks to distinguish young men based upon their athleticism, based upon their good looks, based upon their intelligence, based upon their money, right? And there may be a proper place for some of those things. But amongst the righteous or the faithful, what should distinguish a young man among us is his integrity and his godliness. This is what we should look for. And the young men and the young women should seek to distinguish themselves, to adorn themselves with this internal beauty of righteous, godly living. Because the young man or woman that distinguishes themselves by godliness, 
they will carry that honor with them throughout the course of their life. And it will only be increasing as they get older and older and older because they're going to be growing in those things and they'll become more beautiful in terms of their integrity and godliness. However, for the young lads and young women, I can tell you, your body, it's all going downhill, folks. You're going to get uh, less athletic. You're going to get uglier, right? You're going to lose your hair. All these things are going to happen. You're going to gain weight. It's unavoidable, right? Your body in all the different ways that people seek to distinguish themselves in terms of this world and the way that they appear, all of that is going away. However, character and integrity, that is something that we take with us throughout the course of our life. It increases in us through the course of our life, and it will go with us on the day of judgment when we stand before the Lord. And this is the way that we should seek to distinguish ourselves, whether we're lads or whether we're old or anywhere in between, is through godly and righteous living. And there are examples in the Bible of such lads, such as Joseph. Joseph, though a young man, 17 years of age, when he was sold into slavery, he was a teenager. And in his early 20s, whenever he was in Potiphar's house, whenever he was there in the prison, and even there in Potiphar's house, when the adulteress sought to seduce him to commit adultery with her, he distinguished himself as a man of godliness and righteousness in refusing to commit that evil deed. And he also distinguished himself as an honest man, a faithful man. And this is why Potiphar put him in charge of all of his household, the warden of the prison put him in charge of all the other prisoners. And then ultimately the Pharaoh put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt because they could not find any other man in whom the Spirit of God rested in the way that it did in Joseph. Also, we know that David, he was distinguished as a young man or as a lad. When he was out watching his father's sheep and a bear came to take one of the sheep, what did he do? He killed it, right? When the lion came, he killed it because he trusted in the Lord that God would deliver him and that God would give him the strength and courage to do those things. So even though a young man, he was distinguished in this way. So was Josiah, who was a godly young man. So was Samuel, who was a godly young man. So was Timothy, who was a man of godliness even at a young age. And this is what we should all aspire for in our children and our grandchildren, that they would distinguish themselves in this way. Verse 12. The hearing of the ear and the seeing of the eye. The Lord has made both of them. The sense of hearing and the sense of seeing. These are great blessings from the Lord. Right? What would it be like to go through life without the ability to see? What would it be like to go through life without the ability to hear? Right? These are gifts that God has given to the children of men. But what man has the ability to create the hearing ear? What man has the ability to create the seeing eye? To, to, to do so artificially. It's impossible. People cannot create these kinds of things. It's very difficult for doctors even to understand how the eye operates, the complexity of everything that is taking place there. And yet, who is the one that made the eye so that it functions the way that it does? It is the Lord who did so. The ear and the eye, these are marvels of the creative power of God, of the wisdom of God seen in the bodies of men. And only God has the ability to create the hearing ear and the seeing eye. And they ought to be reminders of, to us. Don't we use our eyes every day? Right now you're using your eyes and you're using your ears right at the same time. This should be a reminder to us to thank God for his gifts, for his greatness, for his graciousness to men. Because it is such a blessing for us to have these senses and abilities, and all of it has come 
from God. It did not come from men. We did not create it ourselves. God is the one that created and formed the ear, and God is the one who created and formed the eye. Both of them come from the Lord. And that is true both physically, but also it's true spiritually. The seeing eye spiritually and the hearing ear spiritually, these also must come from the Lord. Only God has the ability to open the eyes of men or open the ears of men. There are many men who hear, but who do not hear. They see, but they do not see. They are able to come and they hear a sermon or they hear the word of God, but they do not understand it rightly. They do not hear it spiritually so that it benefits them unto salvation. And before a man can hear the word of God truly or see Christ in a true sense, what has to happen? God has to open his eyes. He has to unstop his ears so that he has the ability spiritually to see and hear the things of God. So if we understand the gospel, if we understand salvation, where did this gift come from? It came from God. So who should we be grateful to? We should be grateful to the Lord. We should be thankful to him for his manifold blessings that he has given to us, both physically and also spiritually as well. Verse 13, do not love sleep or you will become poor. Open your eyes and you will be satisfied with food. Here, do not love sleep. Now he's not saying don't sleep. That would be foolish because there's no one who can go without sleep. Even our Lord Jesus Christ had to sleep whenever he was on the earth. So we, there is a proper place for sleep and for us to enjoy it, to be grateful for it, to rest every day, and to be refreshed by the sleep that is necessary for our life. Here he's saying don't love it. There is an excessive devotion to sleep where people are overcome with sleepiness, where they desire sleep, to the detriment of the work and labor and diligence that they need to have in this, in this life. If you love sleep, then you will become poor. If you love it too much, and instead of getting up and going to work, and again, many times, 7 o'clock in the morning, however, whatever, 6 o'clock, whenever it is that you have to get up, you don't want to get up, right? You would rather go back to bed, right, and sleep a little bit longer. But if you love that sleep and you refuse to go to work, eventually you're going to get fired. Your employer's not going to put up with it, and then you're going to be poor because you're not working. So don't love it too much. Open your eyes, right? Open your eyes, get up, you know, drink a couple of pots of coffee, you know, to shake off the sluggishness, and go to work and work and labor, and then you won't be poor. You'll have the money you need to go out and to buy the food that is necessary. Also, each person must also understand their own limitations, right? There are some people who require less sleep than others. There are some who, I was reading about a, a theologian, who even at 12 years of age, he would only sleep four hours a night so that he could spend 20 hours a day reading, studying, in order to develop the skills uh, that he needed in order to teach the Bible. This is John Owen, who is a great theologian, and I'm you're actually getting a lot of John Owen on Sunday mornings because his Hebrews commentary is one of the best that was ever written. He had an ability to do this, but that's uncommon. Other people need more sleep. Six hours, seven hours, eight hours. That's common, you know, eight or nine hours of sleep, right? So whatever it is that we need, we need to understand that, and we need to delegate our life so that we're getting proper sleep and rest so that we can function the way that we should and then not squandering our waking hours 
with worthless types of things. Also, we have to apply this spiritually as well. If we are asleep spiritually, then that's not going to be good. That's very, very bad for us spiritually. And actually in Ephesians 5 verse 14, it tells us to wake up. Ephesians 5.14, and when he says wake up and arise, he doesn't mean physically. He's talking about it spiritually. Because when we are asleep spiritually, we're sinning against God. There is no time to sleep spiritually. We should always be awake spiritually. There is a time to sleep physically, but not spiritually. Ephesians 5.14, for this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. He says, awake up from your stupor, from your sleep, rise up, and then be faithful to the Lord. And this is what we should pursue. Verse 14, bad, bad, says the buyer, but when he goes his way, then he boasts. Here, the buyer who's looking to get a good deal, right? He's looking to swindle his fellow man. So when he goes and he looks at the goods, oh, he says, this is, look at this cow. This thing is a scraggly old beast. It's worthless. This thing is, is it's got one foot in the grave. Just got two foot in the grave. And the other two are on a banana pill, right? I'm not going to give you hardly anything for this cow or for this house or for this car, whatever it is. He's always looking at all the faults, all the problems, running it down, saying this is so bad, it's so worthless. And in doing so, he's able to negotiate a better price for himself. He's able to drive it down so that he gives pennies on the dollar for something that is far more valuable. He says bad, bad to the buyer. But then he goes away and to his friends, he boasts, about how he took advantage of this guy, of how he was able to swindle him, how he got this for basically nothing. He got it dirt cheap, and then he turned around and sold it to someone else for 10 times what he paid for it. This is what he does. He's, he's not being honest and fair in the way that he's uh, dealing with people financially. When he's buying, it's bad, bad. When he's selling, it's good, good. Oh, it's so good, it's even better than most. You should pay me even more than this thing is worth because it's superlative, it's greater than any other thing. And this is not the way that we should be, right? We should be honest and fair in our dealings with other people and not seeking to take advantage. Now, this doesn't mean there's not a place for negotiation. Of course, there is a place to negotiate and to get a fair price, but it has to be within reason, and it has to be within the bounds of morality and ethics and what is good and right. But we shouldn't be seeking to take advantage of other people in this way. And this is what many people do. Then verse 15. There is gold and an abundance of jewels, but the lips of knowledge are a more precious thing. Gold and an abundance of jewels. If you place this before most men, this is what they desire more than anything else, to have the riches of this world. But is, what is more valuable than gold and an abundance of jewels? It is knowledge. It is understanding. It is having wisdom of salvation. Because the gold and jewels that one may obtain in this life, can they take them with them to the life to come? Can they have them on the day of judgment and bribe the judge so that they're led into heaven? No, we come into this world naked and we leave naked. We bring nothing in and we take nothing out. All of the gold and jewels that one may acquire in this life will stay here in this life and will not go with them into the day of judgment. 
But what about knowledge and understanding? If we gain knowledge and understanding and we make a right application of those things unto salvation, to faith in Christ, repentance from dead works, and we believe the gospel, then that knowledge is going to result in eternal life in the life to come. And that's far more valuable than any amount of gold or jewels. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, many people will give gold and jewels for exchange for their soul. But that's a very foolish transaction to make. It's not eternal. They're not considering the long term. They're just thinking in the short term. They're nearsighted. But they're not looking further into the future. They're not looking to the life to come. But we have to have that perspective. The eternal perspective must lead and guide us in all things. Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 14. Actually, verse 13. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. There's nothing that a man desires in this present life that can compare to the wisdom of God found in the person of Jesus Christ. So we should desire Christ more than anything else in the salvation that we have through faith in his name. So then let us pursue that as our goal and as our aim in life. Let's pray and then after that we'll have our meeting and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we are so grateful for the way that you instruct and teach us with such clarity, Lord, with such memorable statements that stick with us, Lord, that we can carry with us. And Lord, we pray that the things that we've heard today, that these would be taken, Lord, that we would meditate and contemplate on these things, Lord, that we would see that we've only done a part of our duty. We have come and we have heard the word, but now the real work must be done. We must attend to these things. We must chew upon them, Lord, and digest them so that they provide nourishment for our souls. So, Lord, we pray that the things that we have heard would not be in one ear and out the other, but rather uh, we would be those who do not merely hear the word, but who also do what it says. So, Lord, give to us this experiential faith, Lord, a, a practice of understanding throughout this week, and Lord, help us to be faithful to you in all things. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.